Welcome, 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 one and all, to A Catalepsis, the definitely not three-hour podcast, brought to you this week by vibrating gay energy with the side of murder. <laughs> did you intend for that to come off as suggestive as it did, or...? Anyways, my name is Sarah. <laughs> and my name is Thomas, and oh hey, we forgot to introduce ourselves last time. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be daring down uh, Catalepsis 2.11 and 2.12 this week. The uh, end of arc two. Exciting stuff. Yeah, it's the end of an era. Sure, Anyways, let's go with that. You start. Um, all right, so for 2.11, Heather has a prolonged flashback to the first time she talks to one of the creatures only she can see in her childhood before snapping back to the present as she and Rain make their way through Sharaford. Rain tries to cheer Heather up and get her talking, but she's hesitant. Finally, the two stop in the library before having a longer conversation. Heather admits she's scared about Rain limiting her agency, about being treated as some sort of a temporary amusement. Rain convinces her otherwise, in both senses of the word. The two decide to head out of Willow House before realizing that they've somehow managed to get themselves caught in a spatial loop, evidently set for them as a trap. Mm -hmm. um, once they're in the spatial loop, Rain and Heather began uh, systematically trying to find their way out, or rather, Rain begins trying to systematically find her way out. Well, calming Heather down as much as possible. Um, along the way, uh, Rain comes to the conclusion that the trap was actually set for Evelyn, a f uh, idea reinforced when they find five thugs apparently sent specifically to do something to Evelyn. It's not clear and probably never will be exactly what they were there for, because Rain murders them, uh, or at least two of them. Uh, Unfortunately, at that point, uh, the cavalry shows up, uh, namely the Sherriford cult zombie and some woman with a gun, and also a lot of demon dogs. Uh, Heather and Rain get harried by them, and as well as Rain is holding her ground, in the end, the woman with a gun is about to shoot Rain, whereupon Heather uses the eyes Rain math to deflect the bullet and then tops it all off by yanking her and Rain out of the space. To places unknown. To places unknown. Yeah, the arc ends on a real cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, not even clear if she punctured the spatial loop or if she just slipped them because it was the better option. Yeah. Uh, shit was going real bad at the end there. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyways, before we get to... Uh, Death and misery. You want to get with the good gay stuff? Okay, so 2.11 is like lots of gay energy, but also it is, before that, it is a lot of mental health stuff. And I'm sorry, but you're going to have to listen to me be a nerd about this. <laughs> okay, so the first line that I have is right in the beginning when Heather has that prolonged flashback, right? She says, I'd scream and rave as, and the, nightly the night duty nurse would ask what was wrong. Then I'd get sedated and wake up to the same monsters in the hospital's dark corners the next day. So, like, this is early on, but it's a really good example as to why it's so important that therapists meet patients where they are. Because, like, even if these hallucinations were not real, like, in if Heather was an actual schizophrenic patient, mm -hmm. just saying they don't exist doesn't really help you when you're seeing them, when they're frightening you. Like right. most schizophrenic patients, and again, this is an overgeneralization, mm -hmm. but 
Many schizophrenic patients in treatment are aware that their hallucinations are not real. The yeah. issue is accounting for the trauma that they induce and their constant distracting presence while functioning within society. Yeah. As it is, Heather's doctors literally encouraged her to lie to them rather than yeah. teaching her how to function with their appearance in her life. Yeah. And it does appear that um, by the time she gets discharged by the hospital, she's already disbelieved Maisie's existence, which is probably not psychologically healthy, but she does appear to be disbelieving the real physical existence of her hallucinations by the point she gets Even discharged then, by we'll, the hospital. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. But like, it's... Oh yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. She's clearly already to the point where she's not believing in their presence, at least most of the time. And yet the doctors are still not interfacing with her on that level. But even in the way that it describes that, the exact line was, by the time I returned to school, I'd learned to believe the monsters weren't real. Difficult to mm -hmm. listen to a doctor tell you the hallucinations aren't real as they leer at you over his shoulder. Listen to the phrasing, I'd learned to believe. Not that she believed, but that she learned to accept that belief because it was easier. Yeah, that's... That's a... Kind of disproving the entire point of therapy, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also... Uh, one thing I have to ask is how... To what extent does... Because we, you've, we've talked about how a lot of schizophrenic patients don't believe in their hallucinations, right? And we've talked a lot so far about how the majority of the experience of schizophrenia doesn't really mirror what we typically see in media, right? Correct. Um, but of course, there are schizophrenic patients who do believe in their delusions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if Heather was a schizophrenic patient with that symptomology, would this type of treatment how, how would that work? Being how, how does that work when you genuinely believe in the delusions that you're told they're not That's real? a lot more complicated. That's usually mm -hmm. scared, schizophrenia with a paranoid sub, subtype, basically, mm -hmm. um, usually called paranoid schizophrenia. It's the difference, at least symptomologically speaking, that, I, that, I, that has been explained to me is having things that you see and perceive are mm -hmm. hallucinations. They're typically, whether you believe them being there or not, they're like sort of one-off events, right? Like you hear a voice, typically hallucinations are auditory, but like you hear a voice or you see a thing, that is a hallucination. Mm -hmm. A delusion is the belief that you have to construct in order to have that hallucination make sense within your worldview. Hmm. So like a hallucination is hearing a voice through the of a relative through the wall a delusion would be believing that they bury your relatives alive in the wall and it's all a conspiracy to like get your family specifically and torture you with it right so in that context though then the doctors would have likely believed she had paranoid schizophrenia that she was having these delusions about monsters and she was inventing a fantasy about why they were existing well, that's the thing like <clears throat> It's difficult to categorize in that in that way because like it's it's especially difficult because obviously like I don't have her quote unquote records from the time. Yeah. And especially since she was a kid, it is really difficult or even depending on what age she is, it would be unethical to diagnose her with schizophrenia. There are specific age brackets for this. 
Mm -hmm. um, I believe the age bracket was like 11 or something like that. I don't remember exactly from my rotation. Um, but especially for a child, you would relax those barriers quite a bit because children's like self-concept of the world is a lot more malleable than ours. Mm -hmm. If a kid sees a monster-like thing and then tells you they saw a monster, that is a lot less worrisome than an adult saying the same thing. Right. And for like either way, the doctor's diagnoser is almost immaterial because the first thing that you would do is address the trauma and the symptoms that the hallucination is inducing. You don't say like, oh, this, the hallucination mm -hmm. isn't real because either way that doesn't really help her. Either she doesn't believe that they're, either she doesn't believe that they're real, in which case you're telling her something she already knows mm -hmm. and doesn't help, or she does believe that they're real and this is going to further distance you from her, from your patient and likely get them to lie to you. Which so either happens. way, it's kind of a moot point. What you do mm -hmm. is you say, okay, tell me what it, like, not what it looked like, mm -hmm. but like, why are you scared? What helps? And you right. slowly construct a position of safety and isolation from that that you can work forwards from. Right. So I guess another question, like, well, I mean, I'm guessing treating schizophrenia in, or or hallucinatory symptoms in children specifically is like a super specialist field. Um, but like, how would you even go about, like, a lot of these medications have really severe um, side effects, right? That mm -hmm. that handle uh, like schizophrenic symptoms. Yeah. Um, how do you, and and of course, any exploratory uh, medication re uh, regimen is always going to be uh, have more side effects than even just uh, using the medication as a baseline, right? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that with a kid where you've like? It's rather obvious that the kid is pretty quickly going to say, I don't want to keep trying new medications, right? Yeah. How do you, but obviously you don't want to, if you think that there is some medication which might be able to help the kid, and especially if like there's low hanging fruit you haven't tried yet with them, do you just, can you just take the kid at their word and say, okay, yeah, we're not going to try any more medications because you do, don't want to, or is it like, something you do for the kid's own good where you're like, okay, we got to keep putting you through medications just so, so you can function. There are a couple different answers to that. My answer is necessarily going to be biased by the fact that medication is literally outside of my specialty. I mm -hmm. would just refer people to psychiatrists for that. Right. So that isn't really something that I'm directly dealing with. Um, right. Other than giving people minor amounts of psychoeducation on the stuff they're already taking, even then my response is like, by okay. law basically needs to be like hey you should really talk to someone <laughs> whose job this is um but yeah. you know what the funny thing is my response would be i wouldn't even jump to a referral for medic for medication that early because one of the so first of all you need to determine what is actually happening that's um are you familiar with well i guess for the for the viewers i'll explain um one of the processes that we go through for diagnosing people with any disorder or condition is called a differential diagnosis. That's basically where you come up with your first supposition for like, I think that they have this. Mm -hmm. And then you need to rule out all of the other things with symptomatic overlap. So like, 
for depression, you need to rule out bipolar disorder because the two the two have so many similar symptoms in depressive or manic phases that you need to be sure which one you're treating because the medication is very different and does not um, fit well on either one or is, similarly for like ADHD versus autism is this also part of why um uh before getting ADHD medication uh you might need to undergo um uh testing for depression or um anxiety first exactly uh Unless you have enough medical history that the doctor can confidently say, like, you do not have this because I can point to these specific reasons in the mm -hmm. DSM that are like, if you had this disorder, mm -hmm. I would expect this. And you right. are on the label as not having that. Of course, what do you Even do then, for kids, you want to be safe. What do you do if someone is both? Well, that's the thing. These things mm -hmm. are not mutually exclusive, right? Right. So, like, or the other thing is they can be, mm -hmm. what's the word? Like... They, there can be comorbidity or even direct influence. So like, for example, mm -hmm. um, someone who has OCD might also have a, an avoidant restrictive food intake disorder based off of their like OCD impacting their ability to eat food in a public setting, mm -hmm. which would then likely um, cause them to be an increased risk for depression because they can recognize that they are unable to function in a public space. And that is very distressing. You would treat for all three of those things, but individually. Okay. And so kind of what you're talking about here is there's just, it sounds like there's a bit of a failure to go through pro, uh, like proper procedures, right? Or at least so they the, got the rushed. The first through. thing, when I, when I look at this thing, mm -hmm. um, what I would point to is like the, and obvious, like this is likely mm -hmm. somewhat, um, I mean, obviously this, like, I'm trying to like talk about the theoretical schizophrenia diagnosis for someone who has gone through magical trauma that has made everyone else forget about the trauma point. So like, yeah. obviously this is going to be a bit, you know, whatever, but for a patient that is within Heather's similar situation, um, what I would look at is like, okay, what are the, like, this is, this presents itself as a very typical schizophrenia case, but another, but we don't know for sure that these things are hallucinations yet because we haven't been with the kid long enough. They mm -hmm. could just as easily be full on PTSD induced flashbacks and that she's processing mm -hmm. them in a way that makes her conceive of them as monsters because that is easier for her to explain. And we don't oh. know that. So we can't make that diagnosis. Um, and also, you know, what is something that can lead to a, schizophrenia diagnosis later in life, mm -hmm. childhood trauma. <laughs> so like, and you know, what also leads to a CPTSD diagnosis later in life, childhood trauma. So well, like, that's basically what CPTSD is. <laughs> yes, but you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So like the issue is that you can't say for sure what these things are yet. So what I would mm. do is before even going to medication, I would say, if there is likely a recent trauma point that she's trying to work through, have her go through art therapy hmm. or sandbox play. Oh, I mean, to be fair, if they did that with Heather and she thought about what she'd gone through, the result would probably have been a screaming, vomiting fit. Like I said, I'm trying to like come up with a differential diagnosis yeah. for a child with magical brain disease. So like, yeah. there's going to be a little bit funky there. Yeah. You'll have and, to forgive me. This yeah. wasn't in my psychiatric course. 
Yeah. Oh, and also just to be clear, when we talk about this stuff, we're not at all criticizing Hungry's handling of it. The way Hungry writes this stuff is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I'm pointing out yeah. how this is an unfortunately real situation that happens to kids who have yeah. not had the luck to get superpowers out of their trauma. Yeah, and also, God, uh, so this might just be the U.S. The U.S. does have a pretty uniquely shitty um, inpatient system. But I remember seeing a, a study recently where um, actors were hired to be um, mm. uh, yeah, checked into inpatient facilities like uh, under like uh, incorrect diagnoses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then basically have them try to explain to uh uh um to the professionals there like hey yeah there's actually nothing wrong with me i'm genuinely fine can i go right mm -hmm. and in every single case they tried it the professionals ended up coming up with something to diagnose them with even though they were presenting none of the symptoms so like for all that we might talk about what the perfect way to handle Heather uh, might be and how we might hope she would get treated, the reality of practitioners sometimes jumping to diagnoses and medication can't be ignored. This is a very real experience which could have happened to Heather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I pointed out that example on my exam really early on that, like, I'm guilty mm. of this too. We all are. It's yeah. why our classes are so insistent on focusing not on diagnoses, but on distress. Your mm. only goal as a practitioner is to reduce distress in whatever form that takes. And as yeah. soon as that distress is no longer present, mm -hmm. your job as a clinician is over. Yeah. It's, um, <sighs> yeah, it's something we uh, handle in science uh, too, which I think, there's been there's been like a real effort to try to systematize um, education about this stuff recently, but just there's real problems where individuals jump to conclusions. We have never really figured out an educational paradigm which makes humans stop jumping to conclusions. <laughs> we can make it better a little, but we haven't really ironed it out. And the best we can do is get us to check one another um and to get us to to get us to check one another's work and to look over one another's shoulders and to put stuff through really rigorous procedures that leave as little room as possible for just making mistakes <laughs> okay so like we're on a tangent we're gonna move oh, yeah. on but i did want to say okay, yeah, yeah. i did want to say to your point that like i think that is the wrong way to approach this that like oh, the yeah? human the human experience of like, quote unquote, jumping to conclusions is like, it, it's not a flaw so much as a fact of our biology. Like it's, it's yeah. not something that really can be changed. That, mm -hmm. that, that process of like having other people look over your work, that is the solution. That yeah. is what reduces this stuff. Oh yeah, that's and exactly that, like, what I meant, like, yeah. There is, there is a reason why no therapist is allowed to practice on themselves or their family members. You're just not <laughs> capable of that objectivity. And it is way the fuck easier instead of like trying to teach someone to be constantly aware and check every single one of their biases actively to just get someone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that was a huge tangent on just the very beginning of this, like a few lines mentioning Heather being in the hospital. <laughs> anyway, I mean, like I have like ten more of the okay, same thing. Go on. <laughs> okay, so the next one um, is we're still in the flashback. This is not a three-hour podcast. Um, it happened on the day after the dis- after discharge from hospital, following a period of improved mental cohesion, encouraged by my parents' desire to have me in a familiar environment, to have me with them, to let me be normal. So, like, I'm going to keep harping on this theme, but it's important. The reasoning behind the doctor's decision here is sound. Familiar environments and people do help. And an alleviation of symptoms is a good sign to try that. But the Mm -hmm. issue here is that the trust and rapport before that point is fundamentally broken. Like, I have Mm -hmm. this in all caps. Trust your fucking patients. Or at the very Mm -hmm. least, trust that what they're telling you is, for them, some version of the truth unless directly proven otherwise. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, I th- honestly, I think that's also part of why meeting Evelyn and Rain has been so incredibly impactful for Heather, because finally she gets to experience the truth alongside other people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, it's also definitely why she was so fucking terrified of Rain believing her at the beginning, because she knew exactly how emotionally impactful it would be for somebody to believe her. Yeah, because, because the thing is that, like, for Heather, it's a little bit more complicated, because for other schizophrenic patients, the difference between that having that outlet and not is usually someone acknowledging and accepting that, like, hey, I see these things that aren't there sometimes, and they scare me. Which is like, okay, if you like seemingly freak out over nothing, I will understand what you're going through and be there for you. Like I can like help cover for you in public and blah, blah, blah. And that's huge. That's mm-hmm. really important. But for Heather, the issue is that she knows on a deep level that accepting that the hallucinations are real and accepting the delusion, or so she thinks, of Maisie being gone and Maisie being real are one and the same. She doesn't get to have that outlet without the guilt. Ah, uh, shit, yeah. All right. Oh, what was the next thing you wanted to pull out? Um, this is just a little bit of elder chore, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, where she's like, of course, I had to get up to use the toilet in the dark. A universal childhood trial by fire. Except my monsters weren't only under the bed; they were everywhere. And like, what a fantastic way to underscore the horror of this moment not just putting this into this childish position that we have all been in, but to then validate that experience, to say that no, not only were the monsters real, but hiding under the covers didn't ever make you safe. Yeah. Just good writing. Yeah. And then there's this next, there's this next part you pulled out where um, uh, it's where Heather remembers that she wants got a monster to go away Mm -hmm. um or she goes go away you're not real i whispered it had it had humped and slithered and slid like sandpaper on rock along the corridor and down the stairs thump thump whack whack and gone i'd never repeated the feat and like first of all real quick that's like children's book narration there thump thump whack whack I think a, a lot of people really underestimate how freaking hard it is to write children's literature. So I'm really impressed that Hungry managed to just like slip into that uh, like style for a moment there, just to emphasize it. Yep. Uh, but yeah, what, what did you have to say about that part? 
basically that it was the the phrasing and the deliberate ambiguity mm-hmm. that last line I really liked because like what is the feat that she's talking about? Was it having the courage to actually say to one of the monsters mm-hmm. to go away? Was it to have them listen to her? Mm-hmm. It, or was it something else entirely? Like, you yeah. don't know exactly well, what happened there. Yeah, and for that matter, it's not even entirely clear if what she did with the creature then was actually the same as what she just did on the street, clearing the street of uh, pneumosomatic fauna. Mm-hmm. Like, for all we know, the creature left for a totally unrelated reason, and she didn't blossom into that power until much later in the eye's teachings. I mean, for all that we know, it didn't even hear her. It just yeah. she just said, "Go, like, go away. You're not real." I'd whisper. <laughs> like that's yeah. it. the fact that the monster went away doesn't tell me that it heard her because if if uh-huh. like if it heard her and comprehended, followed immediately by "You're not real," I'd get the sense to be at least a little bit offended. Yeah, well, we have no idea how they communicate. Like, Heather, we think, was speaking English to one of them, like, wrapped around the stop sign earlier, and it pointed her in the right direction. But also, it's not even necessarily guaranteed that it understood her. It might have just, like, understood from context that she was probably following the creepy thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, later in this chapter, we see mention of a creature uh doing something with its hands and it's said that it might be talking some fine kind of alien sign language which would be we just put disability monster right <laughs> yeah which would be fascinating but also do these are any of these creatures intelligent enough to speak do they are they differently intelligent is do we understand how they would be communicating is is what it was doing with its hands actually communication or was it something else? We we just know so little of what's going on with the pneumosomatic fauna in this world. For all world. we and know, they could be communicating through goddamn pheromones. Yeah, it's... I want to know so much about it and there's so little <laughs> to go off of. No, but it, I think it really emphasizes just we're never going to know this about the one time when Heather was young that she made a monster go away, we're never going to know what happened afterwards or what really happened during that instant because Heather never will. And that's... Story does a really good job of putting you in her head there. Like, okay, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. I swear it'll connect. Um, I was watching my favorite movie last night, Castle in the Sky, with a friend. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this scene for for all of you who haven't watched it, go watch it. But basically, they're they're exploring this floating castles the name would imply and at one point they're walking in this garden and they peer down into this pool and it's supposed to be like this one-off moment because this little like animal like you know scampered off into the pool and then they look down and they see this entire underwater city with like an entire ecology of fish swimming in it and everything that has been there for who knows how long it's like 80 to 90 stories deep the entire shot is like maybe four seconds and then they move on and never see it again. And it mm-hmm. is one of it is my favorite shot in the entire movie because it demonstrates like I'm sure someone else has like called this something better before, but what I call it is vertical storytelling. It's where you take a world and you demonstrate a literal slice of it vertically. And so mm-hmm. that like your audience is keenly aware of the edges where you have cut and say you will not go further, not because there's not anything more there but because that is not what this story is about. Yeah. And this is one of those moments. Catalepsis mm-hmm. has a lot of them. 
which is really remarkable yeah. considering how long it is. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, good at it, too. Mm -hmm. um, all right, what did you have next for me? Um, we're, we're getting out of the flashback, finally, and we're into <laughs> um, a bit of... I'll, I'll just read the quote. Um, <laughs> Rain tagging along like a determined hound dog made me feel awful guilty, but also relieved, and then guilty again for feeling the relief. A vicious cycle. Bad, under-socialized, self-contradictory Heather. I told myself off. Told myself I had to stop and talk to her. So, like, I wanted to just be, like, mood for a second here. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, yes, ha-ha. Heather is a constant mood for me. Yes, you you, you, you wounded me. Um, but, like, this is the biggest issue I have with self-cognition within the framework mm -hmm. of, co self, of cognitive behavioral therapy. But, like, human emotions aren't logical. And trying to process them as logic is mm -hmm. kind of a fundamental fallacy. I don't say that as a, like, you know, oh, like, you know, emotions illogical. I am smooth logic brain, whatever, mm -hmm. like, nonsense. No. But merely to say that, like, logic, that emotions are only consistent within their own frameworks, but that doesn't make them invalid. Whatever emotion mm -hmm. you're feeling at that moment is valid because you are feeling it. The mm -hmm. trick is to acknowledge what you are feeling rather than trying to define the validity of that feeling existing. And that is mm. like the, the, the key part of that process that Heather is lacking in that moment. Yeah. Um, there's also, there's also something interesting here, which is I think self-criticism is sincerely important, right? Um, but one thing I think is really important is that it be connected to some kind of positive drive, right? Like, right. if you're self-criticizing, you should be actively improving because of it. And, like, there should be, the act of self-criticizing should be thinking to yourself, okay, so how am I going to do better about that, right? Or mm -hmm. I'm logging this for later just, to, like, so I don't, like, have a distorted view like distorted positive view yeah. of myself right like i'll think back on this next time i'm getting too much of a big head or something blah blah like the common thread is like oh this is an opportunity for me to do better yeah so. exactly yeah but what heather's doing here is well a vicious circle she's just spiraling on the concept that she is not valuable and that she's doing like she's doing wrong for wanting things without a meaningful thing to tie it to. And the thing is that she's so close. Like, mm -hmm. she's recognized, hey, I want to talk to Rain about this issue, but mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed. So literally just say that. Yeah. Say, like, hey, Rain, I know we have a lot to talk about, but I'm embarrassed. That's it. Yeah. That's literally all you need <laughs> oh, to it's, say. It's, it is, I'm almost offended by, like, how actually effective that tool is which if you are uncomfortable or embarrassed about expressing things to people just tell them that yeah. <laughs> it is ridiculously effective but yeah that could that could also be a way to break this self-destructive loop for heather to just think to herself i'm feeling bad about wanting to talk to rain right i should talk about that <laughs> Or even if you don't have the words, fine. Literally mm -hmm. say like, hey, I'm feeling bad and I don't have the words, but it sucks. Like, yeah. Again, you can be as simple and blunt as you mm -hmm. want. 
so long as you are accurately communicating what you're feeling and thinking, most people who would have that conversation in the first place are going to be pretty open to hearing that. Yeah. And I got to say one thing, Rain really is doing a lot of the emotional heavy, uh, heavy lifting in this chapter. Like, For sure. Like, if she was a little less good at this, this could have really easy devol easily devolved into something super negative. Yeah. Um, and I, I get to that later, but like, that's, that's not a criticism. That's just like a, a moment where Rain recognizes like, hey, I have the skills for this and I have the emotional capacity to do this. So I will, because the person that I like is in pain and yeah. I can. That's not to say that like Heather's taking advantage of her or which is like, I'm sure what she would think in that moment if she can, if she could recognize what's happening, but just that like rain was there and she saw that someone that she saw someone she cared about was in pain. So she acted. It's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's next in this um, one? Well, actually speaking of rain doing the heavy lifting, um, the ghosts and ghoulies are giving you lift, aren't they? Rain said. Ghosts and ghoulies, she shrugged, then very gently tried to take my hand again. This mm -hmm. time, I let her. So this comes right off of Heather literally saying, Rain kept trying to take me take my hand, but I wouldn't let her, no hand-holding during this trip. And then mm -hmm. like three seconds later, she takes her hand. So obviously, um, that's gay. <laughs> but like, what I wanted to point out is that I think this is another ar artifact of the Heather-centric narration that we have here. That like, that moment of no handholding followed by this is caught, those moments are between a long extended segment where Heather takes a look at the monsters around her and sort of recognizes again that they're kind of fucking horrifying. And that mm. this time when Rain lets, you know, tries to take her hand, Heather lets her. And I mean, forgive me for saying this, but I think this is a little bit of environmental storytelling mm -hmm. where. Heather is basically like, she doesn't want to acknowledge why, why Rain is taking her hand or why she's letting her. Hmm. But from what she sees and what she processes, I think we can kind of piece together why. She's scared. See, like, a little yeah. bit. And she's very much allowed to be. Yeah, see, I had just interpreted as her behavior being inconsistent here that like it wasn't really grounded in anything solid so she was flip-flopping between behaviors mm -hmm. but also i don't think that's mutually exclusive with what you just said internally from her own perspective her behavior feels inconsistent and wishy-washy and she's beating herself up over not being able mm -hmm. to stick to something but deeper down i think you're totally right there is actually a solid basis for why she's changing behaviors here there is a very understandable external fear impinging on her. Yeah, that and also like on some level, it is a lot easier to let something happen to you than to do something actively, even if they both result in the same thing. Like, hmm. I remember really, not late, but like sort of towards towards the end of when I was talking to my gender therapist about trans issues, um, we were talking about hormones and stuff. And I, because I'm a nerd, um, I like to pose myself sort of thought experiments within, within therapy. And at one point I was like, so I realized that um, 
if I was told by a doctor tomorrow that I had contracted a disease that would slowly transition me physically to female with like the same results as mm-hmm. hormones, um, my response would be like, thank you for the information and then proceed to do nothing. But mm. I still wouldn't go on hormones. And I was kind of like, why? Like, that's literally the exact same thing. Like, it, it's hormones and everything uh. but name. Why? And then, like, with some prompting from my therapist, I realized, like, oh, it's because I perceive that as not making a choice. Whereas hormones is actively doing something. It's something mm. that I'm choosing rather than letting something happen to me. I didn't say it made yeah. sense. But... No, it- uh, actually, I think it kind of does. Like, um, I mean, so red flags should always go up when people talk about evolutionary psychology stuff. But I'm gonna about to talk about it anyways. Yes. Other than huge um, oversimplifications and like negative costs, yes. Yeah. Well, one big thing is just in general in super complicated environments, taking actions which alter your environment or make changes tend to have very high unevaluated risk factors to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know when something's going to really fuck you up, right? Yeah. Um, but if something happens to you, that cost is already paid. Whether you accept it, if you just accept it, something's changed. But if you take an action to prevent it, you're still changing the environment, that cost is paid, right? Yeah. So it sounds, it sounds super illogical in your head. Am I acting or am I letting the same thing happen to me? Why do I have such a strong preference for letting it happen to me rather than doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is that, no, when that stuff actually typically happens to you in real life, there's a meaningful difference. There's, yeah. Yeah, although I would like caution that the same, the same thing is also true in reverse. Like, Mm-hmm. Letting something happen to you is ultimately still a choice, even if it doesn't feel like it. Oh, yeah. In the definitely. same way that, like, like the with the same mm-hmm. trans analogy, that is why so many people are avid proponents of hormone blockers. Because mm-hmm. even though people say, like, oh, it's just normal puberty, that is still a choice you are making about how your yeah. body develops. You'll be stuck with those consequences for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. I, and also that is just... why people are such you know, are are so up in arms about that. Yeah. And also just to be clear, um, when I say like there's a reason for like the emotional reaction to uh, like doing something, feeling so much more intense than not doing something, right? That doesn't mean you should act on it. It's just there's a reason that exists to get you to double check your decision making. Correct. The moment you let it paralyze you, it's a problem. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. What do you got next for me? <laughs> Anyways, on a wildly different subject, um, we have the funniest moment in either chapter. Fight me. Um, Rain, not here, I hissed. Where else then? She murmured. I can follow you around all day, unless you straight up tell me to leave and mean it. Say it if you want. I'll go. I promise. You're violating the sanctity of the library, I whispered. <laughs> Rain struggled not to giggle. Don't laugh. And I just have, Heather, you goddamn nerd. <laughs> uh yeah and also to be honest that's very gay but also i love how rain 
I, I love how Rain is inviting Heather to say where they should go next, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, it could be anything from, look, I want us to stay here and lay off, right? Or, fuck, let's go get coffee. Or it could be, let's go back to the magical metaphysics department or the medieval metaphysics department, which they do. Or it could be, yeah, fuck it, take me back to my apartment. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a good way of, um, Rain has realized, this is before they have mm-hmm. talked about exactly what Heather's issue is, to be clear, but mm-hmm. Rain has already realized in some way, like, oh, my issue was I didn't give you agency. And so here she's trying to give it, even in a very small way. Yeah, Rain is so good at this here. Just, she's really good at resolving uh, resolving the issue, especially when Heather's not being the best about articulating what that issue is. <laughs> Heather is very, or sorry, um, Rain is very good at um, solving problems. She usually takes a um, a very direct, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm struggling for the words here, like a very um, hand-in-fist approach to solving <laughs> problems. Yeah. Um... What I'm trying to say is that she murders people. <laughs> That's next chapter. <laughs> Anyways. And she doesn't do it with her um, fists. She uses a weapon. <laughs> she'd do it with her fists if she didn't have one and you know it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of Rain, I actually had a moment here I wanted to poke you about. Um, she said, and I quote, I swallowed, needed real effort to squeeze the words out, that you needed a damsel in distress so you can play it being a knight errant. Ow. Rain puffed out a breath and put a hand over her heart. A flicker of genuine hurt passed across her face, the power of her usual grin showing through, but battered out of shape. And I just wanted to, like, poke you about this moment, because this seems like a a bit where we're getting some, like, rain masks a lot, yeah. just out of necessity, out of habit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this seems like a moment where we're seen a little bit under that, and I wanted to nudge you about it. Yeah, my notes on this exact passage were uh, that at this point in the story, when I was first reading, I really fucking hated Evelyn. Because <laughs> she hurt both Rain and Heather like this, like really yeah. badly. Um, yeah. And uh, the thing is, I think at least part of Rain's injury here is the simple fact that it was Evelyn saying it. And that it has done harm right um i think if evelyn had said this to heather and heather hadn't internalized it i don't think rain would have been as upset um that also might just be me projecting onto her though um but i think part of the reason it's just a flicker of genuine hurt across rain's face is because she doesn't really have a script for dwelling on or her pain or leaning on someone else for it um rain is a person of scripts uh she's really really good when she builds up um the script and like the algorithm in her head for what to do right like she's really good at paying attention to what's going on in heather's head especially when she has some time after the fact to reflect she's really good at breaking this stuff down but rain has no capacity to do stuff she has not practiced and Mm -hmm. that's true for everyone to some extent but it's doubly true for rain when it comes to social situations rain has 
no has no script for processing this kind of hurt. She's never had somebody in her life where she could, where like if Evelyn really hurt her, she could talk to them about it, right? She certainly could have talked to Evelyn about this stuff. <laughs> um, it's interesting because like I can sort of relate similarly in that like especially as I recognize these things later, um, a lot of like so. Obviously, all, all like the, with the caveat that all autistic people are going to process this stuff differently, different experiences, blah blah blah. Um, I learned how to read facial expressions in stages. Um, I was not born with that ability at all, and basically, I just systematically memorized a series of micro expressions unconsciously until like I could just like reference them in like a mental catalog of like this is what disgust looks like, this is what anger looks like, this is what happiness looks like. What are you saying, mood or just yeah, mood? Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. So, you understand what I'm talking about, yeah. So, like, the interesting thing is, I'm not sure how it worked for you, but for me, I only noticed these things working when I had an entire category figured out and I started using it. Because, like, let's say that I had, like, I'm struggling to put this into the right words, let's say that I was flirting with someone because I was starting to understand flirting microexpressions and tone, but I didn't have all of it understood yet. So I could get myself into a situation where like genuine flirting slipped mm-hmm. into nervous flirting on the part of the other person. And I was pushing too hard and I didn't recognize that. So I kept going. The yeah. social consequences from doing that would be far greater than if I had done nothing at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't, and like, obviously it wasn't anything this conscious, but I would only really start engaging in those kinds of conversations and relationships at all. When I had a pretty firm understanding of, Oh no, regardless of what this person does, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to at least have a basic understanding of what they're thinking and if not, I have tools to mitigate whatever situations I get into. Yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if Rain has something very similar going on here. And, like, I think she is hurt here, but I think part of the reason it's a flicker is because she doesn't she doesn't have any script to process it. She has no idea what would be an appropriate way to bring this up with Heather and say, like, holy shit, that actually hurts a lot. Can we pause for a moment? I, like, I, I don't think she knows what to do there. Um, Very fair. And it's interesting. There's a line right after this where Heather says, I was mortified by the power of my own words. And I just find that just a fascinating bit of phrasing because, first of all, she's blaming herself rather than Evelyn, which is interesting because it's Evelyn's words. Mm-hmm. Um, also, for uh, Heather, of all people, to say that is notable. Oh, how so? Because I really wanted to ask you about this. Because Heather is the lit nerd. She is the person Uh... of the entire party who would be incredibly aware of how powerful a few words can be. Mm. And, of course, this actually hurt Rain, who's been so goddamn untouchable up until now. Yeah, that and Heather is also incredibly, like, self-aware of the intricacies of social dynamics, even if she can't... um, like, I was talking about my supervisor with this a couple weeks back, that, like, the the issue with autistic people and that a lot of them um, come up against 
is that autistic people are typically bad at demonstrating compassion, which is to say, accounting for someone else's emotions within your social interactions and actively offering support if they're having difficulties. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because they're typically bad at recognizing emotions, but they care a lot. Like most autistic people are very, very aware if they have messed up socially. They're hyper aware mm -hmm. of it, in fact. And that is what makes them often unwilling to enter emotional social interactions in the first place because they will know they messed up, but not why or how to fix it. That's awful. Mm. Oh, so, and it I, makes what, a lot of them come off as cold. Well, like, real quick, I wonder if that's part of why Rain is hurt so bad here. Because this whole time, she has been doing something which has been making Heather more and more afraid that she's just being pigeonholed into some, like, role or kink by Rain, and Rain didn't know it. It does not help, no. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, no, I I can totally see exactly how this uh, hurt Rain now, because... God, yeah, that absolutely hits like a fucking trigger for her. Evelyn laid a landmine Rain didn't see and couldn't see, and so she's been steadily scaring Heather and undermining her confidence in herself just by being herself and flirting with Heather. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, no wonder. That is, one of the, like, that is also a huge reason why, as an autistic person, I took so long to start flirting with and entering romantic relationships with people because mm -hmm. like I was just so sure that I would hurt someone and that right. like, I was just like the best option, objectively speaking to not hurt someone is to not interact with them. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then of course also rain here has, Rain very clearly has a style for flirting. She is a very specific script she runs for flirting. I, I can only imagine how much it must suck to have that feel tainted. And the issue, of course, is that Rain correctly recognized, at least partly, that like she didn't recognize that Heather was feeling guilty and ashamed of like how this is making her feel. But the other issue is like, for all that, like. I'm I'm trying to tread delicately here because I don't want to reduce this to anything less than what it is. Mm -hmm. Rain actively and deliberately reducing Heather's agency in a way that she does not consent to is awful. And mm -hmm. Rain herself says as much in this chapter that like that would make her mm -hmm. a scumbag and utterly unremarkable besides. Yeah. So like, yeah, we're not on board with that. But for all that, like, Heather, or for all that Evelyn was sort of insinuating that this is Rain's kink, mm -hmm. it's kind of more of Heather's. Hmm. And she knows it. <laughs> and that's where that guilt comes from. Oh, like, yes, haha. Yeah. -ha, but also, like... She, she's terrified that if she... She's terrified that because she likes this... It means she is going to be in the position she was trying to so desperately escape from with her parents, one in which she is infantilized and taken care of and never given the opportunity to explore the world on her own terms. But that this time she asked for it. Yeah. And especially that this happened 
just as she learned that her hallucinations were real, Maisie was real, and she had a whole wide world of brain math magic to explore. Yeah, yeah I can imagine the yeah. concept of voluntarily recaging herself in that. Of course she had such a visceral emotion reaction to this. We we will get to my opinions on how catalepsis treats and dances around the subject of like actual present sexuality as it comes up. I have thoughts. They will wait. <laughs> yeah. And actually, one thing I just wanted to add here is that um, uh, the relationship stuff in catalepsis is genuinely too high drama for me in the sense of like, it's not what I would want for myself, right? I am... I value contentedness a lot. I am the most... <laughs> when it comes to romantic relationships, I am deeply earnest, but very low-key, right? <laughs> this mm -hmm. ain't my thing. <laughs> the stuff of catalepsis, right? Yeah. But one thing I did want to say about it, even in that context, is no matter how low-key you are, no matter how calm or placid you are, you got to be able to handle conflict like this. There's going to be cases where somebody says something and like to your partner and you don't know it but it like got into their head a little and so you're talking past them and they're talking past you and emotions get high just because that's what happens with people right and the key to a relationship is being able to resolve that without it cascading or getting worse before it gets better and that's exactly what happens here rain and heather do work it out as much as Heather is self-deprecating uh, in this uh, scenario, at the very least, things don't escalate. Um, she does keep things at the very least plateauing until they get better, and Rain, no, Rain in turn doesn't escalate or ramp things up or push too far. She keeps things steady until she can resolve them. And I yeah, think it's just this, um... it's good. <laughs> Yeah, there's this quote in like a little bit farther ahead that I want to jump to because you're really reminding me of it, where Heather says, because our relationship is off to such a great start, isn't it? First kiss to first blazing row in under three hours. That's got to be some kind of record. And I was like, honestly, this kind of unironically is a good start. Like that, not necessarily that they had an argument, but the fact that they had the argument this early and immediately responded with good communication and healthy assertion of boundaries. That's a really excellent sign, actually. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's it is. just good. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure everybody listening to this is screaming at us to get to the steamy stuff when we're just talking about <laughs> how we're, they're good at we're, conflict we're resolution. We're, we're, yeah, exactly. So, anyways, we're going to skip to the end of the chapter. No. Okay. <laughs> so, we are, we are moving on. Um, so this is where you were speaking of Heather being self-deprecating. I mean, you know, why don't you ping off catalepsis? But anyway, we're going to talk yeah. about this specific bit. Um, let me finish. I'm not, an I'm not a very interesting person either. I suppose I'm not a complete idiot, but that's about all I have going for me. I'm no fun to be around. I'm hard work. Look at what I've done this morning. I don't get you, Rain. And like, mm -hmm. so it's really easy from the out from the outside to say this and especially considering that I voice the same thing to my partners all the time but Heather's fallacy here is in thinking that a relationship doesn't entail work hmm. in saying that I require effort therefore I'm not worth it yeah. everyone needs work in a relationship platonic or otherwise that's what a relationship is it's work mm -hmm. on both parties and having a partner means having someone saying that 
the benefits you bring to me make the work worth it. And that isn't your decision to make one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It's theirs. Yeah. And and that's the terrifying part of it because you need to trust that that statement will remain true for them and you can't influence that. It's scary. Yeah. It's uh, it's also one thing I think to be honest why um uh why seriously low self-esteem can be the death of a relationship and why like you know people talk about how confidence is attractive but I think there's actually a fairly good reason for that, which is if you have really slow self-esteem, you're not going to be able to construct an honest picture of why your partner or partners like you. And that is going to distort your relationship with them. And it's going to make it more difficult to live together and resolve conflicts and create positive moments. It's it can be the death of a relationship really easily. Mm-hmm. There's also like, if you, so I don't know about you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, there was actually one more thing I was going to say after that. Uh, you mind if I let you go after No, which, go for it, go for it. Which is why I think the turning point in this conversation is when Heather finally says, this isn't all about Maisie, it's about me too. And that's where it says, a change came over rain. She raised her eyebrows and nodded. Ah. Ah, there it is. There it is. <laughs> and I think that's that's the point where Rain became confident again in the conversation and she started leading. And there's a reason for it. It is genuinely difficult to deal with somebody who is wholly self-deprecating and isn't willing to self-advocate or have positive goals about themselves, right? It can be very difficult to work with that. What Rain knows how to work with in Heather is Heather saying, yeah, I need to be strong. I need to be, I need to do this for myself to prove I can. I need good self-esteem because that, Rain knows how to build that up. And if Heather's got that, they're going to be fine. Yeah. All right, you go. You had something. No, it's, it's it's a really good point because like the, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and I heard that whole, like, you know, confidence is sexy, I thought about it in the, like, really awful, like, asshole-ish, sophomore <laughs> bro way, you know? Uh-huh. Because that's what the media feeds us. And that's not the kind of confidence that I would want. And it's not the kind of confidence that is actually attractive. It's mm-hmm. because that that kind of confidence always felt selfish. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a, a front that you're putting on for yourself. You know, because that's what it is ultimately most of the time. Um, but the the kind of confidence that that we're talking about is almost selfless in nature, because if you want to think about it that way, because it's not about you in that moment. It's mm-hmm. about you being able to have enough certainty in yourself that you can give back to your partner. That you have enough to give back to them. Because why would, how could you ever give something to your partner if you have nothing to give? Yeah. It's, it's about, it's about knowing that like, yeah, this is how I can make your life better by being in it. And at this point, this is, I think, really important where Heather says it's about me too, where she stops being 
totally selfless and trying to hollow her presence out, essentially. And she says, Mm -hmm. no, I want to do this. Even if you and Evelyn could do it for me, I still want to be involved. I need to be involved for my own sake. That's Mm -hmm. a positive drive. Like, for all that pride is on the list of the seven deadly sins, it's not entirely a negative thing. Yeah, and while I spoke of selfishness and selflessness earlier, Mm -hmm. that was mostly in context of motivating yourself to work on this because people Mm -hmm. tend to view selflessness as better, but it isn't really. I was more speaking of them as qualifiers. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. selfishness is not inherently a sin. It's just a quality of a trait. Yeah. Some things are selfish and good because they are selfish. Yeah. (sighs) And... Speaking about having good things in your life, can we finally talk about Rain flirting with <laughs> Heather into the ground? Almost. Ah! <laughs> there's one. There's one more moment that's too good not to mention. Um, where where Heather kind of breaks down and says, "I'm scared too." I admitted, sniffed, and realized I was almost tearing up. Rain reached forward, and I put a hand out. I had to say this stuff. But I can't, I don't want to be weak anymore, hide anymore. That's worse than fear of pain, much worse. And so I know we haven't covered this explicitly much because it'll come up later, spoilers, but Heather is a giant trans mood, and this is part of it, this moment, this, this sentiment, that the default trans response for a lot of people, whether in hearing about their story or in relating it to other people, is to equate it to the word bravery. It comes up a lot. And the best response I ever heard on the matter was bravery implies that I have a choice. Heather doesn't Hmm. think she's brave, not because of what she does from the outside, but because of the reality that doing so is easier than the pain of doing nothing. Hmm. And her flaw is in realizing, is in not realizing that that's what bravery is. Yeah, what is it? Uh, the alternative isn't bravery, it's just stupidity. Some uh, saying like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. And of course, then Rain goes on to say, count me in. I'm still scared for you. I want, to, I want you to bleed. I don't want you to bleed from your, from your eyes or chuck your guts up or worse. But if I tried to stop you, I don't think that would hurt you more. So I'm in, she shrugged. After all, protection is what I do, if you'll have me. And mm-hmm. my notes just say, and Rain literally sums up my argument in four sentences. Why do I even try? <laughs> oh, God. That happens so often when I'm writing notes. <laughs> um, I, mean, I mentioned this in the Discord the other day, almost. Um, Hungry is like a magician who shows you her tricks. Like, the be- like or who explains the, uh, her tricks. Like, the best magicians and card sharps out there can tell you exactly what they are doing to fool your perceptions and still and still you can't see it like you still get pulled into it right um magic isn't the method it's the skill with which they do it yeah because they're just that goddamn good um and it makes it even more engrossing to be honest because you're because you're looking for it right and i I think hungry does that a lot hungry really often has character say or has Heather think in her internal narration exactly what's going on in the story. Exactly 
how the emotions are affecting the characters, exactly what the pacing is about to be or has been in a section. It just Hungry is very upfront telling you exactly what is being done with her writing in the narrative. And it just, and it would be very easy to make that something which just totally falls flat, you know, because, because like, you know, you're pulling behind, uh, pulling the curtain, uh, curtain back and showing you what's uh, behind it, right? It would be very easy to just, for that to turn the story kind of mechanical, but it doesn't, it just enhances it. It's great. <laughs> I was going to say the real, the real trick of it, honestly, is not even what Rain is saying. It's how she's saying it. It's like the re- so like part of the difficulty in writing dialogue or really the main difficulty is in writing something that both sounds natural and is easy to read because maybe you've gotten this much from listening to our podcast people don't talk well or concisely in the in the same way in which they're written mm-hmm. because if you actually wrote dialogue the same way people talked no one would read it <laughs> yeah and that's just the way people talk. It's fine. We listen with different ears than what we read. Mm-hmm. But, and of course, now I'm being super self-conscious about what I'm saying as I'm saying it. I was um, trying not to pay attention and you ruined it. <laughs> uh, but the, the magic to me here is that so many other authors would like lay out these breadcrumbs and then combine it all into one beautiful, perfect quote that mm. reads as if Rain had all the answers. And mm. it would be pretty and lovely, and you might quote it, but it wouldn't read as being from a teenage girl. It would read as something that you read in a book. And that's good, mm. but different. The magic trick here to me is that Rain takes all of this and she condenses it down into the bare essentials while still sounding like she's just saying things off the cuff. And you believe it. Yeah. It's so good. Speaking of how Rain says things, can we finally get to her flirting with Heather? Yes. Yes. Now we're there. Okay. I just have this, like, this entire next passage is just quoted. You're just going to have to go through it with me. Um, God, I feel mortified just reading this. Um, Look at you. She smiled, bit her lower lip, really looked at me in a way that made me blush hard and bright red. You're small and mousy. You're so careful with what you say. You're so nervous about almost everything around you. It's so cute I could eat you. I think I will. (laughs) My only notes are literally vibrating with gay energy. Yeah, um... Yeah, I got no notes to that other than I've done exactly fucking that, except I added wrist pitting to it. <laughs> it worked. Stop teasing me. <laughs> My partner isn't hearing you know it. <laughs> uh, you'll just have to stew in your frustration. That, that was exactly what you signed up for when you read this chapter. We all know it. Especially, it's like especially Hungry, so does, <laughs> Hungry doesn't even deliver on it in this chapter, which is the most frustrating part. <laughs> we get snagged deliver on it in this arc. Ah, uh, we get snagged into an otherworldly thing, which is fascinating in its own right, but it's also not Rain finger blasting Heather on the couch <laughs> to use her own crass terminology. Hungry delivers on a minimum of that too. <laughs> 
I'm um, still bitter. We will get there when we get there. I am very yeah. bitter. Yeah. No, but I find it really interesting then how Rain turns this flirting into a way of resolving the previous stuff, right? Because there's just, mm -hmm. there's no way here that she's going to get Heather out of the headspace where she's thinking about this white knight dynamic as it applies to her, right? And she's just stuck in a negative spiral around it, right? And Rain could talk about like, hey, there's other stuff I like about you. There's this fascinating stuff. I want us to have a deeper relationship than that, right? But that's not what she does. What she does is she waits for Heather to have self-confidence and then she says, okay, in that context, yeah, let's be honest, we both like this. Because that's where she says, but I won't stop you from being strong. No matter how much you change, you're always going to be Heather. Yeah, so maybe you learn to cut through solid steel with your mind or command demons or fight a god. But at the end of the day, you're still going to need a hug. You're still going to be shorter than me, and I'm still going to be able to pick you up and princess carry you. And you can't do a thing about it. <laughs> and that, right there, I, that's... Yeah. It, it's Rain turning the flirting about the White Knight and the princess complex into something which doesn't have to be associated with Heather's like negative self-perception at all. And it's brilliant and it again still yeah, feels like a teenager like, doing it off the cuff <laughs> yeah it's like the I, my notes basically read like this is what it's all about that uh. it, it's not about these binaries of strong and weak that heather is trying to cling to of like agency and, and and loss of control it's about leaning on one another at points of strength and asking for help in moments of weakness mm -hmm. and it's in being able to acknowledge that yeah maybe Sometimes I like being taken care of, not because I can't do it, but because it feels nice when you do. Yeah. And that is not weakness asking for that. It is strength. Yeah. And that's yeah. also what I really like is that it's, it is still flirty. Yeah. But it's genuine in a mm -hmm. way that just, I don't want to say it reads better than the other parts because it, all of it's good. But it wouldn't be complete without this core of like, yes, haha, ha, you're blushing bright red and I know that I made you feel that way. But also that, but I respect you far too much to do anything you wouldn't want me to do, even if I need to tease you into asking me for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. At which point... Rain literally sweeps Heather off her feet in a princess Gary, and Heather kind of gives the game away by saying, don't do that again without warning me. <laughs> oh, it's great. Uh... Um, for, for anyone who has not been swept off their feet in a princess Gary by their partner, hike recommend. Oh, fuck off. You know I'm too large for anyone to do that to me, and I'm jealous. Oh, what's <laughs> that? Obvious. Complaining? Oh, Oh, the world's tiniest violin cries for you, my friend. <sighs> Y'all see what I have to deal with? <laughs> look, look, look. Just because I want to uh, pin my partner down sometimes doesn't mean I'm not also interested in being the little spoon sometimes. It's just that I'm fucking enormous. <laughs> look, if if A really wanted to, like, to pull you up, A could get, like, a a winch because y'all can't see me because you know it's a podcast uh i'm six foot two or like 188 centimeters in proper units 
and he's a tree yeah and like not a small tree either like my build is broad fucking shoulders and like naturally got like <laughs> naturally got some muscle to me i um i, am I have no idea large. how much you weigh actually uh last i checked uh 230 pounds yeah yeah and that's uh yeah again for perspective on my build that's that's not really fat that's just that is how large i am at kind of my like my my automatic size <laughs> and it ah oh, it's so useful sometimes when it comes to say princess carrying someone or spinning somebody around or but it's not goddamn useful for being princess carried <laughs> anyways we're moving on um we have the quote about the like relationship being off, being off to such a great start which it is heather fight me um mm-hmm. And then there's this moment um, where Rain kisses Heather. That's a pretty light word for what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to read all of it, partially because I was too mortified to even copy it into the Google Doc. Um, but the, the, the um, what's it called? The reaction was, nobody was around to see, but I was mortified anyway. Mortified and powerfully turned on. When she let me go, I put a hand to my chest and hiccuped twice. <laughs> that wasn't like this morning. And my notes read, I'm not even going to comment, followed by the word fuck three times. <laughs> I have to say the hiccuping was very cute. That was really cute. Uh, yeah, and it's just... Uh, it, Hunger is just also very good at using, like... Hungry can, like, wax Rhapsodic when needed, but she's also really good at just using exactly the right amount of words sometimes. Like, that passage opens with, she kissed me, and then a line break, and it wasn't gentle this time. Mm-hmm. That's really, that says a lot. That's really fucking good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. And, and afterwards, um, a different kind of kiss, she said, I gathered. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, speaking about that, um, there's a really interesting part here, which just comes back to like this is like a queer lit story, right? Um, mm-hmm. Heather's talking about how you know her hands are shaking, her heart's uh, beating crazy fast, she's blushing, and then she says, "I'd never done this as a teenager. Never fumbled through the first few steps of physical romance. Had no idea what the proper etiquette was or how I was supposed to act toward Rain. But weren't we supposed to? I don't know. Go on a date first? My body said no. No, wait. Now. Now. Right? And, like, it's not universal, but damn, that's a common queer experience. Especially because, yeah, yeah, like, a lot of us are frankly old enough to be having sex by the time we are making our first forays into relationships at all. A lot Mm -hmm. of us are powerfully pent up by the time we're making our first phrase into relationships and also also um i will point out this isn't even a trans mood so much as a queer mood Mm -hmm. many of us have very different and often complicated relationships with our sexualities and our bodies physically or otherwise 
And that makes yeah. all of this way more complicated. Yeah. And also, yeah, another thing here, like, another thing which comes up often is this is less common nowadays, but oftentimes when a queer person has decided to pursue their first relationship at all, that involves violating social and religious prohibitions, like, period. That's less true nowadays for, like, uh, Gen Z and whatever the fuck the younger than Gen Z generation is, which terrifies me. That My that's God, I don't even want to know. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's less common nowadays, but especially in the tradition queer lips rooted in, by the time you're engaging in a queer relationship at all, you've already discarded most of the social and religious mores, which would prevent you from just going straight to sex in the first place, right? Okay. Which isn't to say that social, like, uh, mores about taking things slow can't be a good thing in the right circumstances, right? But just, they're typically dashed by the time you're doing anything queer, mm -hmm. right? And so, of course, Heather's raring to go, not even a date in, right? That's a very common part of the queer experience. She's almost 20, never kissed somebody before, has is way outside of the bounds of any typical relationship advice which would apply that she might get which would apply to this so yeah of course she's just her body's just saying yeah no no fucking waiting get laid right now <laughs> yeah also your body is her body is on some level saying like you get your first chance to do this with someone immensely attractive that you did not ever think you'd get and you want to wait and see <laughs> yeah no bitch you go now <laughs> yeah yeah um and the the other aspect of this i want to point out is that like this is somewhat unique to heather's position in particular within the queer community um sex between two lesbians really is almost whatever you make it out to be hmm. so like it, what that looks like is also really strange and scary and some because there's no like one act that occurs like it's not oh, just yeah. like oh you penetration you know because yeah. like you can have sex without ever doing that yeah or like just yeah so i just wanted to point out that like another part of heather's somewhat conflicted like why do i want to do this right now is like she probably doesn't even have a good mental image for what that looks like yeah no, I remember um, uh, something which happened in my uh, sex education classes in high school. Um, uh, my sex education classes were surprisingly good for U.S. standards, like actually exceptionally above and beyond good for U.S. standards, and they were still kind of shite. So, um, But one of the good things which happened in the class was our teacher invited us to discuss what our mental definitions were for stuff like virginity. Um, and to just have an open forum discussion about it with one another, right? And one thing I'm never going to forget is this one girl who was discussing, like, uh, she had this very narrow definition of virginity where it uh, solely involved, uh, like, penis and vagina uh, penetration, right? Um, and I asked her, I was like, well, so then how do you think virginity applies to gay people? And there was just a moment 
where you could hear people's viewpoints realigning in the room. And the conversation went very different after that. It was a lot more complicated and nuanced. <laughs> um, yeah. And I know, like, she had some very interesting stuff to say uh, after that. It was a fascinating conversation, but it's something which comes up here, which is that our typical notions of, like, before that point in the conversation, when things had very much been centered on a straight framework, it was, like, most of the sexual acts lesbians could participate in were absolutely reg like relegated by the majority of the class to play. Yeah, to acts which don't involve losing your virginity. Um, and that really freaking complicates first times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the other thing that that kind of immediately the, the next topic that that begs the question of is like, how is virginity valuable in the discussion? Because for a long time, my opinion on the matter was that like, oh, virginity could be valuable, not as a marker of worth, but as a marker of inexperience, purely in the sense of like, hey, I am signaling to you that I haven't done anything before. So like, I am going to need help if you have more experience, or if we're both inexperienced, this is me telling you we're on the same playing field. Which on some level is still true, but it's still not really useful because even if you aren't a virgin, like there are many, many things individually which you could not have done while not being a virgin. So the better yeah. way of phrasing that is still like, I have not done this before. Mm -hmm. Of course, in Heather's case, the answer is I haven't even kissed until like 12 hours ago and Rain's <laughs> inviting me to take a shower with her. <laughs> Listen. Ah, uh, maybe it is best that they get interrupted so that Heather's poor little, like, face doesn't just spontaneously combust from the power of her blush. So speaking of interruptions, um, oh, they're, yeah. what's it called, um, they're trying to get out of the, the house at this point so that, mm -hmm. you know, um, Rain can demolish Heather. Mm -hmm. And Rain just notices, that's odd, she muttered. Wait, what's odd? Corridor seemed longer. Stairwell should have been back there, one set of fire doors back. So, mm -hmm. again, this is like, we. this goes back to that moment earlier on, I think like two mm -hmm. or three chapters ago, where um, Rain noticed the lights being out and immediately connected that. And oh, yeah. just like, it is, it is very easy to say that a character is observant. It is way, way more difficult to just have a character be specifically observant. Oh, you're totally right. <laughs> Noticeably so. Yeah. Also, I just wanted to say, as much as as much as it frustrates me to go from interesting full speed ahead, <laughs> um, uh, there's no way I can phrase this to those lesbian sex. <sighs> you had to phrase it that way, didn't you? I mean, what else would you call it? Now you make me see weird. <laughs> uh, anyways, it, I think it was very interesting of Hungry to use this as a way to have the trap blindside us because mm -hmm. you don't see it coming. If you t if you tell me you saw it coming, I'm going to call you a liar. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's not. It totally gets you into tunnel vision following Rain and Heather's story 
their romance, their interests, uh, all of the horny thoughts going through Heather's head. It just totally tunnel visions you to the point where you almost forget where you are, except the context is, except like not at Rain's place yet. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just fucking hits you like a train T-boning you at an intersection. And what I also wanted to say is that this really benefits from the, I know I talk about lampshading all the time, but still like, so uh. I didn't talk about this much, but the expectation, especially in like a teen drama like this, is mm-hmm. that, oh, they like, they sort of take the first steps of getting together, but then there's an, there's a misunderstanding and then they mm-hmm. run away and then like they almost talk about it, but then they get interrupted. So it just like sees under the background and they have to deal with this crisis and blah, blah, blah. And so then like, and Hungry is like, no, they're going to talk about this because they recognize that it is important and they just mm-hmm. talk about it. And then you're like, oh, oh, this got resolved and we're moving along. Okay, okay, let's do this. All right, I'm here for it. And then she interrupts it as if to say, <laughs> oh, you thought it would be that easy. <laughs> It's rude is what it is. My god. Hungry just continuously. Oh. I'm not going to use the words that I was going to. Let's go uh-huh. with teasing. Teasing the entire <laughs> fandom. Uh. You can, you, if you thought I was going to say another phrase, then we're going to move on. Oh, I was just going to um, say like rain. Yes. <laughs> um, what I was going to say about that quote in specific is that... um. Honestly, the best comparison I could make to this moment is like something out of Junji Ito, which for those who don't mm-hmm. know is a horror mangaka. Um, it's something that starts as incredibly small and innocuous as like a, like a quote unquote mm-hmm. off detail, slowly devolving further and further into horror. Spiraling, I guess you could say. What was that last word? I missed it. I, what, whatever your sm- pun you're smiling about at me, I genuinely missed the word. <laughs> I said spiraling, I guess you could say. Yeah, I'm glad I missed that and just nerfed your pun right there. You don't deserve that one. <laughs> I have it in all caps in the notes. <laughs> okay, that's it for this chapter. Oh, Lord, yeah. Um. So, yeah, as we get into uh, 2.11... um. This also kind of follows from something at the very end of 2.10 where Rain just says, like, when weird shit happens, the best thing to do is stay calm. And she t- she repeats it for Heather, and the repetition's important. Most important thing is don't panic. Take a drink, eat a cereal bar, calm down, get your bearings. And this is just such good advice, and I'm really impressed by how well Rain handles this, because, like, handling people who are in shock is a seriously difficult part of emergency management. Like, it's not something I have any particular experience in, but it's something I've heard from everybody I know who's done any kind of, uh, like, uh, emergency training. You never know how people in shock are going to react. You never know how they're going to react. And things can shift on a dime, like, uh, uh, when they do that. Um, So the important thing is just keep everybody calm and reinforce it and repeat it because it, you got to have your brain work in order to get through a disaster um and then uh, one part which was like really uh sad though was when heather responded to it just by saying like i'm actually not panicking now i've done this too many times before it may as well be routine at least i'm not alone this time 
God, just <laughs> such a downer realizing, oh, fuck, yeah. Heather has slipped so many times that this genuinely isn't actually, like, panic-worthy for her. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. that this situation is, like, an objective improvement compared to the, the times that she's found this in the past. Yeah. This is also something which makes me go, though, like, um, it's like the little things that, like, pop up when um, a writer, like, actually really understands anxiety versus doesn't. Writers who really understand anxiety tend to get this, which is that it just makes no logical goddamn sense. Like, mm -hmm. you can be freaking out over the littlest thing and then suddenly transition into the biggest goddamn emergency of the year for you and just be cool as a cucumber through it. Yeah. It's so weird. And likewise, you can be freaking out over mm -hmm. the smallest inconsequential detail and then another gigantic crisis overshadows that and that's the thing that makes you calm yeah it's like so here heather is still freaking out over her whole sexuality crisis and then suddenly she's like oh we're in a different reality thank god <laughs> you're right yeah um speaking of the other reality though it's an interesting thing where there's like a corridor which appears to loop in on itself seven times like rain tears down some posters puts an x in the wall and when they like loop the corridor once it's gone but if they loop it like seven times it's back right mm -hmm. um and so heather's thinking of this thing as like a mobius strip and then the moment she tries to think about it too much just the eyes math like brain math hits her like a truck and she just immediately pukes mm -hmm. First of all, story setting. I really like this. I think it does an excellent job to set up what happens later in the chapter where Heather does stuff other than slipping with her brain math mm -hmm. by establishing the fact that the eye taught her just a ton of stuff which can hit her unexpectedly. Good foreshadowing. Yeah. This uh, is, I think, the first time that that confirms that like the eye teaches her things that she can do, not just yeah. things to perceive. Yeah, well, she can do the slip. That was a thing it taught her. But yeah, I guess. I, I, anyways. Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually this is the other way around. This is the first time that it realizes the eye taught her things she could perceive as opposed to just doing, because she understands mm. the space. Also, look. On one hand, I know that technically whatever is going on in this space is ridiculously complicated, and there's definitely a reason it's fucking with Heather. But also. This isn't that complicated. <laughs> it's like you can make a pretty good analog with this with what's just called like a finite 2D fiber bundle on a like Z to the one seventh plane where Z is a complex number. Um, it gets like a little more complicated when you include the corridor, like the staircases, but I think that's just like that's just a cylinder like stitched from one layer to the other it's not that it's not that complicated i don't think giving me a look i'm looking at nothing <laughs> just, just keep going <laughs> you're you don't look like you'd appreciate that i can't hang up on you because we're in the middle of a podcast. Uh, Sarah does not appreciate the math. Um, but yeah, anyways, uh, it makes me wonder if one of the, if like part of what might be going on here isn't just 
that the concept is inherently alien, um, but that the eye has failed to pare its tools down for use by a human mind. Because from what we've seen of the eye so far, when it sees something, it sees all of it. It sees through you, it sees every atom, it sees your thoughts, it sees your past, it might even see your goddamn future for all we know, right? Um, the eye sees all, right? Um, so maybe what's going on here is essentially just that it's given Heather tools with which to perceive the space, which is too complete. She she needs a dumbed down little model of just like, yeah, the 2D fiber bundle on like the Z to the uh, uh, 1 over 7 uh, plane, right? That's all she needs. But maybe instead whatever the eyes lessons are giving her is like, an atom by atom description of the goddamn wave functor. I was about to say, like, it's to to use your example. You're like, oh yeah, it's just this like simple equation that you can model. And Heather just response was saying, like, I'm trying to perceive all of Excel while I can only read binary. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting here. Heather does freak like is not doing well after vomiting her guts out, right? And it's interesting how this interacts with her previous discussion with Rain. Like, I was wondering what you thought about this, because um, there's kind of a part where Heather's trying to say, like, but I can do this, I whined. You said you wouldn't stop me from being strong. You, you, and Rain reacts by saying, like, and you will be, but, like, right now is not the time for this. You're untrained, like, you're unpracticed, and this is a trap, and if something goes wrong, I'm going to have to carry you, right? And I was wondering what you mm -hmm. thought about how Rain handled that. So, first of all, like, I'm definitely going to answer that question, but I wanted to point out that Rain uses the specific word untrained, unpracticed, or un-whatever-the-fuck-you're-going-to-be. Mm. And Hungry definitely knew she was lampshading there. I refuse to believe the alternative. <sighs> you're not allowed to spoil stuff. I'm not going to. I'm just saying that is very deliberately there. Yeah. Anyways. Um, no, it's a really good point because, like, on one hand, Rain recognizes that, like, hey, I just resolved this argument off the basis of Heather needs her agency, and when we're not doing things which she consents to, then she needs to have that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, she's like, the time for Heather to advocate for doing things on her own and being strong is not right when she's about to get herself fucking killed. Yeah. And I also really appreciate just Rain's practicality here, which is the simple fact of, hey, look, you can do that if we don't have any other options, but let's do the basic stuff first, like marking the walls and walking down the different corridors. It's, we talk all the time about like, there's an application of like the practical to the Eldritch in this story, and it's so applicable here. Like, Rain just Rain gets out a Swiss Army knife, takes out her fucking screwdriver on it, and starts unscrewing the doors from the wall, <laughs> the doors which won't open, mm -hmm. <laughs> until she gets to a brick wall behind it. Like, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's. Ex but can we just can we just acknowledge that fact that like, mm -hmm. if there is nothing else in this entire story that will convince you that Rain is a butch it is the fact that she just has a screwdriver on her. <laughs> just in, in such an occasion like this. <laughs> I mean, technically it's a Swiss army knife, but... 
Yeah, that just makes it worse, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Uh, so, okay, we're about to get into a part where there's a lot of violence, which I'm going to be talking about a lot, right? But before I just go rambling off, there's a part I wanted to ask your opinion about. Um, mm -hmm. Rain guesses that this whole ambush, this trap, is for Evelyn. And I wanted to ask your guesses on why do you think... Why do you think this is happening now, basically? What do you what do you think the Sheriffford cult is trying to accomplish here? Other than just maybe murdering Evelyn, right? But if mm -hmm. it is just murdering Evelyn, why now? I think that this is in response to or in in anticipation of a move within the power dynamic between the cult and Evelyn mm -hmm. that has happened before this story started, that we are totally uh... unaware of and never will be. That, like, this is just part of the ongoing slow proxy war that they're engaging in. And uh, that, like, they just, they were, they were hoping for a lucky shot, or mm -hmm. maybe Evelyn fucked up with something of theirs. Because, like Rain was saying at some point later, that, like, yes, this trap was made for Evelyn and not for them, because <laughs> there just wouldn't have been time since their encounter with mm -hmm. them recently for them to set up anything like this, much less know their location to spring the trap. Ah, uh, so nothing to do with the messenger, then? I just don't think there's been time. Hmm. Like, think of how, like, how long has it been since that point? You you yourself said, like, maximum 12 to maybe 20 hours. Yeah, it's been less than a day. Yeah, think of how long it would, like, the men later say that they're hired by a fixer. That takes time. Oh, shoot, that's a good point. I was thinking about this entirely in terms of the metaphysical. I was thinking about stuff like, um... No, I uh, just immediately went to yeah. logistics. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I was thinking about the logistics of stuff like how long would it take to set up the ritual, get the zombie in place, um, uh, and the woman with the gun seems like a professional. We can assume she's like contracted with the cult on a long term. You do basis know who that is, right? Yeah, I do. Okay, okay. I just wanted because yeah. I did not realize until I reread this. I was like, this is where we meet her. Yeah, yeah. Um, as long as we're talking about names of recurring characters, uh, it's Stack, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, we can generally assume that, like, most of the resources they had, the metaphysical resources or, like, the professional personnel resources were on hand or maybe could be kicked up fast. But you're right, I'd totally forgotten that. Actually, yeah, getting five blokes together to eat and or kidnap and or kill a random girl in a fucking university actually takes a fair chunk of time. <laughs> Yeah, and especially to get them into position and to like they were obviously outfitted in um in like worker clothes with high high um vis vests yeah. that were like magically enchanted to also serve as like keys to get in and out of this place presumably. Like yeah. that is a lot of specific work. This must have taken at least I'd say outside a week. Yeah. That is very interesting, isn't it? Um mm -hmm. Actually, I wonder if that's I wonder if that is related though to the fact that they grabbed the messenger. Um, in the sense that, did they advance a timeline because of that, or could they capture the messenger because they were in the area for this in the first place? Yeah, they very easily could have been scouting for that, and that's what led them to like being in the in the region for, yeah. the, for the messenger itself to begin with. Yeah, no, maybe they could grab the messenger because they were already watching the damn building. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Hmm. Well, so I guess now we need to talk about what happens to the five guys. 
Um, yes. Do you mind if I just ramble on about the sequence for a bit? Just go for it. All right. I mean, know that we're like already close to two hours, but <laughs> go off. Um, so first of all, I would like to emphasize this whole scene heavily emphasizes the humanity of the men who are about to die, right? Even mm-hmm. though they're enemies in the sequence and they're opponents, it doesn't flinch away from the fact that they're human. It uses a lot of narrative tricks to emphasize that. And it doesn't flinch away from showing Heather being horrified by it. And yet also, oh man, it doesn't hesitate to show Rain exulting in it and being in her element. And the juxtaposition is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so like, it starts with the men just being confused. Like one of them turns around and just says like, I thought she was meant to come from that way, right? And it's just mundane, casual human confusion, right? It's such an interesting mm-hmm. opener to it. Um, and then after the fight's done, um, when two of them are lying probably dead on the ground and the rest are bleeding, the one guy is just saying, all right, all right, okay, yeah, okay, all right. He was repeating over and over. It's a traumatic shock response shown from the side of the opponents in the story. That's rare, right? And I love it. And if Rain wasn't in the scene, I would just be gushing about how this is an awesome depiction just in general of the brutality of combat and lending humanity to it and emphasizing how meaningful it is when people die. Mm -hmm. But Rain adds a whole different perspective to this, right? Um, because after she kills them, it says Rain grinned. She was flushed and breathing hard, bobbing from foot to foot like a boxer, weighing the metal rod in her hand again. She hefted the bat and let out a long, shuddering breath. And just, so our very first conversation about the story ever was us talking about interpreting this as possibly sociopathic. Like, Mm-hmm. Not sure if Hungry was really going for that or like was going to succeed in the long term, but it was us discussing, is she going for that? Because it reads like that, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing because as a sociopath, I focus a lot and care a lot about realistic depictions of violence in stories, not because I'm trying to get off on it or anything, but because like... Uh, I have a perspective on this stuff which is very deeply informed by the fact that I never got to I never got to let this stuff fade into the background for me. Um, (laughs) Right? Like uh, this isn't stuff which how to put it you know like in a typical fantasy story the hero just mows down a bunch of gooks and we never really think about it again right? I was going to comment on that too that like if heather was or rather if rain was if you took this like moment in isolation uh-huh. out that she would just be like any other like action girl of like mowing down enemies and grinning as she's in her element but it is like the yeah. reaction of everyone else that puts this in context of like oh no it's not that like hungry is leaning into a narrative cliche it's that she's really like this and that isn't normal yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, this was something which, God, this passage informed me so much when it came to trying to understand how to write sociopathic characters myself, because it really made me understand that 
a key part to writing them is for is having to accurately write the rest of the world's response to violence um because if you don't it's so easy for it to just be a fiction cliche like an action cliche right it's so sociopathy is almost or at least poorly written sociopathy is basically the goddamn default in action stories which in turn makes it really difficult to write it well you've got to write that fallout fic eventually (laughs) i have a number of fanfics running around in my head which i bounce off of sarah and she despises me for never writing any of them except the one i I will pay you (laughs) uh you know later we should talk about the fact that i actually did figure out how to like reframe the opener of that to be better Oh my god, we're not do- I'm not doing this to myself again. <laughs> you know you will. You have no self control. Moving on. This is the part where she would hang up on me if we weren't on a podcast and she wasn't trapped in here with me. <laughs> what I also wanted to mention about this moment of like rain being yeah. flushed and breathing heavy is that like this is the most aroused rain has been in the entire series. And mm. I don't mean that sexually, although honestly that might legitimately be a component of this, mm-hmm. but more just sheer biological arousal. Her, oh, yeah. her heart rate is elevated, her pupils are dilated, her breathing is is like sharp and hot. Oh yeah. It's Even... this is the most excited and active she has been by far. Even more than when she was uh making out with Heather and pinning her against the wall, to be honest. And yeah. that's something I relate to a lot, which is um the uh the component about sociopathy for me which comes with like violence and death um research is really hard to come by on this stuff it's not entirely clear whether all sociopaths have this um it seems like actually probably even maybe most don't but of those of us who do it's the most intense thing um i mean for all i know if i ever did cocaine it might be more intense um but the impulse and the emotional urges around this concept are overwhelming beyond anything else uh eminently controllable as clearly rain manages to control it here right and i've never heard anybody (laughs) but it's so well done here i absolutely felt like what rain was experiencing here was representative of my own experience it was what made me so excited to read catalepsis and I mean, I was excited to read Catalyst before this, but it made me excited to read it on a different level where I was feeling, oh, fuck, this is this is a story which gets it, right? And even more fascinating, like, there's stories which do their best to, like, portray sociopaths before. Like, you know, there's the uh, TV show Dexter about serial killer, which eh, gets some stuff. But, like, but let's be honest. Shows like that, shows which typically care to portray a sociopath and, like, give it any, like, degree of thought, are typically not ones which, like, are encouraging you to really... How to put this? They exist in a world where that kind of violence is very normalized or made to be okay. That ain't what fucking happens in this scene. This is a scene which re- like mirrors the real world and how you should feel about violence in the real world. And yet it has a character like me. And that's a first and an only actually for that matter. 
um, in a story like this. This is the first time, the only time I have ever seen a character like me shown from someone else's perspective in a world which cares about human life as it should be cared for, in which I have a place in such a world like that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, speaking That's of... That's why representation matters, folks. Yeah! <laughs> it really does. <laughs> um, in, which, in which not only is there a place for Rain, but Rain is valuable exactly because of who and what she is. Yeah, and I also like how it's not just that she's valuable because of violence, it's her sociopathy uh, gives her a degree of disconnect from the situation, um, a lack of fear about impending consequences, which is common to the condition, um, which allows her to be useful in other ways, too. It's not just the violence. It's that she can keep a calm head. It's that she can do the practical stuff. Like We pointed out twice already, <clears throat> like, she has saved them twice from running straight into traps already and it is only because of again who she is that she was able to not just parse those details and assign them to like the correct amount of importance Mm -hmm. but actually like do that in the moment that she saw them that is rare for trained professionals to be fair i think that really is more training and practice than sociopathy but at least i don't just mean i don't just mean that in terms of like the ability to do that I mean the presence of mind to do it even coming off of an emotionally charged moment. That she's oh, just yeah. constantly running that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking of this story respecting human life, again, these guys are assholes. Um, they willingly took a job to fuck up a disabled girl, at the very least, or possibly kill her or kidnap her, right? Um, like, for five guys to do it together. We're not meant to sympathize with these people. We're not meant to care about them, right? Or at least, like, we're not meant to value them as nice folk. And yet, when it describes what Rain's done to them, four of the men lay on the floor, two of them not moving. The fat man, the leader, was slumped face down with the back of his skull caved in like an egg. Blood soaked into the thin carpet. The last man standing backed away and dropped his knife, knuckles bleeding and split from where Rain had smashed his hand. There is no way to feel anything other than, well, I can feel something other than nausea here, but the intent is to feel nauseous, to hate this, to not like it. Um, You know, the interesting thing is that's not quite the reaction that I had because it's like the, this might be because of like my training, but I just took this in as like clinical information. Mm. This is just like, the scene being described exactly as the perpetrator or victim experienced it. Yeah, I can see that. Like, this is what I am working with. Yeah. The, there's the next part, though, where Heather says, like, um, I was shaking all over, hand in my mouth. I'd unconsciously backed away until I hit the door, adrenaline and panic clawing at my stomach and chest. Rain, I squeaked. At least one corpse blocked my route to her. And that, at least... I mean, that's still clinical, right? But, like, yeah, fuck. (laughs) It takes you straight away from Rain being hyped up and excited and powerful to that, to abject fucking horror at the violence. And just at least one corpse blocked my route to her? That's not even subtle. That's Mm -hmm. that's not subtle at all, (laughs) but it works. Yeah. Um... (sighs) And one more thing I just wanted to mention before we get on to the 
cavalry arriving, right? The actual mm-hmm. threat. The description of the violence here is extremely good in terms of like how fast combat is. Um, like really, I don't think most people realize how long combat stretches out when you're in it, right? But like, I have straight up done three minute spars before where it felt like I had been going for a full half an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, Where I was so wiped by the end of just a mere three minutes that I was having trouble lifting my arms. And like, I literally would not have been able to add two plus two is equal to four because my brain was so fried. Like It's exhausting physically and mentally, mentally, obviously, yeah, but also physically because like, I, any of any of the viewers who like can do this without hurting themselves um try to keep every muscle in your body as stiff as possible for three minutes not moving <laughs> just standing there yeah it is exhausting <laughs> yeah oh yeah um so fights happen stupid fast and the thing is especially multiple fight like multiple people fighting one they always happen brutally fast one way or the other, the fight is going to be over in seconds. Um, because either you're going to die, or a whole lot of people are going to die one after the other really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Especially when weapons are involved, and they are here. Um, and, oh, God, the writing's just so good here. But um, it just goes through it brutally fast. The narration is blunt and impactful and bear of flourishes which again this is something hungry's showing you her tricks she straight up says this was a real fight nothing like in books or films no flourishes or heroics and then the next five sentences are totally bare of flourishes and heroics and they are just brutal description of the sound of impacted meat a strangely soft crack of broken bones and just blitzes right through it right and it adds so much to rain thrilling at it Rain thrilling in this would not mean as much if we were not shown the abject horror of it. I, I don't know what else to say. I could ramble on about this forever. We, I should be moving on, shouldn't I? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um. There's a description. Oh, God. There's one more description. The men are described when Heather realizes that, like, they're not, like, they're just, like, the welcoming party. She calls them a mere later a mere layer of ablative meat and goddamn good description grotesque imagery but good description yeah i wanted to point mm. out i needed to actually like look this up to be sure um ablative armor it's described as armor which prevents damage through the process of ablation the removal of material from the surface of an object by vaporization chipping or other erosive processes this is about as brutal and mechanical as it can possibly get oh yeah yeah um, and the thing is, after this, God, Hungry's so good at writing this stuff. Um, Zeng, uh, the big, tall, seven foot, uh, uh, Zhang, right? Thank you, thank you. We, we, I looked up how to pronounce that in that last episode. <laughs> uh, Zhang, yeah. When Zhang, the seven foot tall lady who's all covered up, comes through the doorway, um, Rain says, "Oh, Heather," and she takes a step back back up through the door now and that was the most fucking terrifying part of the entire uh chapter yeah yeah just like there were nightmare hounds after that which were described in the most hideous way like 
plastic hinges at Komodo dragon jawlines, seal reinforced legs, eyeballs of incorrect size rolling loose in their sockets, tripping singers and uh, stingers and drool looped from muzzles unable to close properly. Like that's horrifying, right? Mm-hmm. The scariest part is where Rain, having just gone through five guys like a scythe through wheat, goes, "Oh fuck," and just like. Back up, we're retreating. It's not even, if she had reacted to the hounds in that way, it wouldn't have been as scary. Because the Mm. hounds are something that is like, you can understand why they're horrifying. But we haven't even seen Jung move yet, aside to literally dodge one of the pieces of metal that Rain threw at her. That was all Rain needed to see in order to know just how fucked they were. To be fair, she also killed one of the guys when she came through the doorway. (laughs) Yeah, but that was kind of from off screen. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um Yeah, and so and actually speaking of which, the nightmare dogs actually do basically turn out to just be attack dogs. That's there's really nothing more to them than that. Which is yeah. fucking terrifying in the first place. Attack dogs are goddamn scary. Um But um the description is just so good here. Like, um uh there's a part where Heather says, like, I could barely keep my head on straight, let alone form a coherent plan. If you've never been in the middle of a genuine melee, then you can't imagine what it feels like. Everything happens too fast. No time to think and react. And then I scrambled up the stairs, banging my knee and scuffing my hands. And just that right there, that last line is part of it. Heather creates this jumbled narrative where a ton of stuff is happening every paragraph, right? There's always stuff acting. And in the paragraph where she talks about it, there's a sentence for that. Totally disconnected from the stuff before about just her banging her knees and scuffing her hands. It's good. And I could go over literally every paragraph around it. That's all so good. It's good writing. I like good writing. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways. Um, there's a part where um, uh, Rain here is described as... um. Uh, it wasn't bravery, it was joy that was, like, keeping her up. Like, she was grinning and covered with sweat and 100% in her element. Um, this is actually one thing uh, that seems to be um, somewhat common among military like uh, military combat accounts from sociopaths. Uh, a lot of them will describe it's like, yeah, I'm not exactly braver than your average person. What I have is that, like, I saw one person describe it as, I forget to be afraid until I'm in the thick of it, and then I'm too happy to be uh, fighting until it's all over. But if I ever stop to think about what I'm doing, I'm fucking terrified. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also wanted to point out, this is yet another occasion of Hungary doing that thing you like of the multiple different perspectives at the same Uh time, where she says, in the heat of the moment, I thought her brave. No, it wasn't bravery. It was joy. We're like providing like three different layers of like yeah. slipping in and out before you even see what's happening. Good writing. Uh, yeah. Um. I also got to say, I'm just impressed by Rain here. To, that the fact that she can says she says at one point like Heather, I'm loving this, but even I can't keep it up forever. We gotta leave. That's just. I really gotta respect that about Rain. That is an iron amount of self control there. Um. Like, I've got that level of self-control when it comes to controlling my more violent impulses, but um, to put it mildly, my 
capacity for self-control with that kind of thing is kind of fucking ridiculous. <laughs> um, uh, I'm an outlier in many ways in that regard. Um, it shows that even with that amount of self-control, like Heather, or sorry, um, Rain couldn't bring herself to contain her joy even if she tried. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's out of the question. The, it's the fact that she can... So, no, of course. Yeah, it's I, the... <laughs> I'm not denying that, but I'm saying, like, even through that, it still shows who she is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's like, what she is is the fact that she's loving this. Who she is is the person who says, I'm we not... We gotta pull back. Yeah, we gotta retreat. Um, yeah. No, um, actually, it's very interesting. There's no, uh, uh, oh, what's the word for it? Machismo about this at all. Mm-hmm. I really like that, actually. Yeah, it's um, almost like the reverse of that, where she's like, she's acknowledging the moment that, like, yeah, I love doing this, but also, like, I know that if I keep doing this, I won't be able to survive to do it more. So out we go. Yeah. And then here's this next part. It is a truism that if a trick works once, it might just work twice. Those two guys, or those, sorry, those five guys were at a blade of layer of meat just to slow well, who was supposed to be Evelyn down, right? Mm -hmm. So were the Nightmare Dogs and Jung, for that matter. I would say Jung is closer to, like, option A. Yeah, fair enough. Whereas Stack yeah. is option B. Yeah, but, like, to be blunt, like, especially the dogs, right? All they mm -hmm. are, really, is a distraction Yeah. so that Rain and Heather don't notice Stack on the floor above in the stairwell with a gun or more specifically again remember who this trap is for evelyn. they are assuming that this is rain and evelyn yeah. jong is the nightmare dogs are to get them on their edge that rather so like if we're if we're dissecting this trap piece by piece hmm. the blokes are there as scouts and so that is if evelyn is alone maybe they might catch her off guard and that's it yeah the dogs are there so that if either of them try to run, that isn't an option, and also to distract Rain for long enough that Jong can engage her. Jong is there to keep Rain occupied so that Stack can get into position for Evelyn, who is actually the king in this ah, entire engagement. You're right. And also, let's not undersell Jong. The moment she gets into melee with Rain, she fucking kicks her ass. Yeah. <laughs> Rain holds her own for about five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also just. I really love, God, I love what Hungary does here, just with interrupting this magical combat with nightmare dogs, with the mundane and the extremely dangerous, a gun. And also, I think this is also, this is something I don't think you can't do except, like, in the UK perspective, to be honest. I was about to comment on that. Yeah, go, go on, yeah. Um, no, just that, yeah. that line that you pulled out, I'd never seen a gun in person before. It didn't seem real. Yeah, just, I don't think this whole scene would have landed nearly as hard in, like, a story set in the U.S. Um, just because, God, first time I fired, like, I'm from a family of um, people who have no real particular interest in guns, and I'm very much an advocate for gun control and all that stuff, and the first time I fired a gun, I think I was seven, maybe eight. I fired one when I was nine, and my parents were very angry, and I didn't touch another one until I was, like, 13, and I went ran, went onto a firing range once, and then I never touched one again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't, like, handled a gun that many times in my life, but, like, 
God, it's such a different cultural perspective in the UK where it's like, wait, someone could be seeing a gun in person for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> but it adds to the, it really adds to the scene. It emphasizes just how dangerous guns are. Also, um, okay, no, never mind. Um, well, no, it's still like, so it also informs their cultural perspective because like in America, like <laughs> this thing would be like an anti-material sniper rifle. <laughs> Here, it's an old bolt action rifle. And even that is like, there is enough, like, <laughs> that is seen as like, yeah. I don't well, want to say don't terrifying because that rifles. implies that that like wouldn't kill you, which it absolutely can. But yeah. like, that is just as shocking for the fact that it is a rifle at all. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then there's also this part where Heather deflects the bullet, right? But to mm -hmm. do that, the only reason she can do that is because she's already deep deep in like the eyes equations like trying to pull them out of the spiral right um and there's a part where it says from a standing start i'd have been useless and i just think i wanted to say i really like what that does because it's very easy when giving your characters like a power which allows them to deflect bullets or whatnot for that to permanently review remove future tension and risk from the story mm -hmm. but this doesn't at all the fact that Heather could only do this because she was already in the middle of it, that this wouldn't have worked from a standing start, preserves the tension and the risk while giving Heather her big, awesome moment. It's cool. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I just like how when she does it, it's described as inelegant and wasteful and incredibly painful. Like, that just makes me want to know more. I want to yeah. know what elegant and, like, clean uh, like elegant and efficient looks like i i want to know what it looks like when an uh, entity which understands these equations and can use them properly does so mm -hmm. um, what would even be your considerations for energy expenditure i mean i would argue um, i mean my first assumption is that energy is not necessarily a conserved quantity in these scenarios right um but like i'm thinking about stuff like you know how the messenger just like casually moved rain across the room, right? Yeah. I'm thinking something more efficient might have just been something along the lines of just the bullet comes towards rain and then just skips the space between the front of her chest and the back. Mm. Like just something yeah. so, or just knocking it into like a little bit into another dimension, like, or just like i imagine there's a lot of stuff which could have been done much more efficiently and maybe even just deflecting it was done in a ridiculously inefficient manner right but it emphasizes how heather got or like lessons. move move the bullet forward in time such that like if you shot it in a straight line eventually its velocity would be countered by gravity and then like place yeah. it in that moment in time in front of rain and then it just falls to the floor yeah, shit like that. Yeah, like, it, it, uh, God, the story just does such a good job of making us feel like Heather really doesn't know what the fuck she's playing with, right? And like, Again, in, vertical storytelling. It's like yeah. you can just see the edges of everything yes. that isn't there, and you're like, ah. <laughs> okay, I just spent like a minute trying to ramble about this, and you'd already done it with your analogy. <laughs> you'd already I done it better than I could. To... I also wanted to point out um, 
the given the whole bit we had about analyzing Maisie's message in the last chapter, mm-hmm. the fact that Rain or rather um, Heather specifically describes it as um, from a standing start, I'd have been useless, but I was already knee deep into the eyes, impossible equations, my mind on the verge of plunging in. If I'd had time to think, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how combat works too, just in general. That, that works no, for throwing no, a not, punch too. <laughs> I was thinking literally that like, oh. what if what she's implying here is when she's doing the eyes lessons, she isn't thinking. She's literally not processing cognition. Oh, and you're and talking about that begs Maisie. the question: What is she doing? Oh, are you talking about Heather? Talk- like hmm. sometimes Heather references like leaving her body and coming back to it, and re-perceiving mm-hmm. her body as something else, something other. What if that is what she is always doing whenever she does this? And that shock, that like that damage, mm-hmm. is from a brief moment of going out and then coming back in. Interesting. It would explain a lot about how she can get so much cognition done on time frames that are frankly shorter than like the clock cycle it's of shorter a neuron. Than perception. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, I just wanted to add the writing when Heather is like messing with the eyes equations is so good. Like every sentence like almost verges on grammatical failure. Like yes. not quite, but it takes a moment to parse. And also when she describes it as like inelegant and wasteful, the writing is clumsy and brute force too. It's, mm-hmm. I need to stop talking about this stuff. If I keep talking about this stuff, I'll talk about it for the rest of the podcast. Yeah. Like not just and this the, episode, the other thing that I them. wanted to point out is that like this one interaction from like I ran through mm-hmm. a dozen equations to the end is also exactly epitomizing the difference of the perception versus the reality of Heather. We get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines, like a full long paragraph by Catalepsis standards of us going through exactly, or even longer if you're like yeah. counting the windup um, uh-huh. of Heather going into this brain math of detailing the trial, the trauma, the struggle, the like the barely getting it. And yeah. then the outward description, I turned the bullet away from rain. Oh yeah. No context. Well, no, uh, no, like no perceivable way effect of how that happened. Just the result in uh, isolation. Yeah. Oh, and before the line from a standing start is the woman pulled the trigger. And all of that stuff, all of that happens between the space of pulling the trigger and the bullet, like being halfway to rain. Oh, I'd missed that. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're, I refuse to let us go for three hours again. Okay. The very last thing I had to mention is that, um, uh, after this, Heather goes again into the eyes equations and yanks them out, wherever that might be, right? And it mentions mm-hmm. my chest wrenched like my ribs were shattering. We keep on yep. getting mentioned as the chest might be the location of some pneumosomatic organ which is handling things. And I am noticing, I am noticing these constant repetitions of mention of the chest. <laughs> Also, some another interesting thing that I kind of happened on. Um, so, like, mm-hmm. we were kind of assuming that up until this point that, like, whenever Heather is like diving back for the brain math, that she's like, like, like you know, like when she says the like the I left these things for me, that it's some sort of like a on some level a rhetorical device, right? That like, yeah, the the I taught her all this stuff but she only remembers it when she actively goes looking for it, right? Mm-hmm. 
But like, given the damage that it does to her, isn't it incredibly narcissistic to assume that the human brain could physically contain any of this knowledge? What if the pneumosomatic organ isn't her slipping at all? What if it's literally her being able to transmit her consciousness into a higher plane where this knowledge actually exists? Yeah. Yeah. It would fit with the rest of the story. Anyways, just food <laughs> for thought. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we got to go. Um, uh, we'll be back next week for special bonus time episode on thoughts of, on the arc as a whole. Oh, I yeah. No idea what we'll talk about, but... Oh yeah, right. So yeah, uh, next uh, week we're going to be releasing an episode where we like do our recollections of the arc, but also we're each just going to pick a topic we find interesting and just ramble on about it a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, you had one picked out, didn't you? Um, I yeah, I thought I was going to do um, imposter syndrome and queerness in relationships as they relate to mental health. Oh yeah, that's going to be real good. I'm looking forward to that, y'all. <laughs> mm. um, Meanwhile, I'm just going to be talking about my work a little bit, which is um, ultra-fast lasers, which means you're going to get to hear me ramble on about what even a laser is and how we can then, like, yank the physics of lasers into a back alley and mug it for all it's worth. <laughs> and they can all laugh at me attempting to keep up, yes. Hey, I'm actually good at explaining this stuff to lay people. I It is a thing I actually try to be good at. <laughs> uh Anyways, it's been wonderful, y'all. I uh, didn't deny that. It's just my own inability to parse these things. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to hear it. And you will hear, which means you will hear the laser stuff anyway. Oh my God. Just take us out, please. <laughs> All right. Uh, as per usual, the intro and outro music is from Celestial Experiments by Tyler River. And the art is by Noctilla at noctilla.art. It's been wonderful, y'all. I hope you have a good time. We will see you next week and safe travels for Thanksgiving. Indeed. See you all. Bye now. <laughs>